This is such a contentious podcast. I've said so many things. We are the opinions team from Empowered Journalism, and this is the Empowered Opinions Podcast. This report is a, is a marker for this government and their, their stance on this. What kind of level of entitlement does it take to say something like that to, to a natural human being? It just feels like, oh, any excuse to sort of whip out the flag and really sing Rule Britannia is like, let's go do it. Welcome to our fourth episode of Empowered Opinions. Today, Sanjana and I are going to be talking about the race report that was recently released by the government in the United Kingdom and also about the whitewashing of racial issues in the UK media recently, specifically in regards to uh, the reporting done after the death of Prince Philip. So Sanjana, do you want to introduce yourself again to our listeners? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Sanjana. I am one of the opinions editors at Empowered Journalism. And um, I'm a South Asian woman. So that's kind of where I'm coming from in terms of talking about this today and kind of weave in a couple of my own opinions, uh, my own experiences, uh, but hopefully we'll also try and uplift the experiences of those who I know as well in in the ethnic minority community. Amazing. Um, I'm Arvi, as you probably already know from previous episodes. And I'm also from uh, South Asia, um, uh, Sri Lanka specifically. Um, So should we just get started then? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, Let's go, yeah, let's just get right in. It's quite a heavy topic, but um, I think there'll be some interesting discussions. I guess if we just start with um, both of us discussing our initial reactions to the report. So it was a couple of weeks ago now, but Adi, if you could cast your mind back to when we got those first headlines, institutional racism doesn't exist. Like what was your first thought that came to mind? So I can remember sitting, I was in my room and I was on my phone and I got the BBC notification that when institutional racism doesn't exist, UK report fines or something like that. And I remember just sitting there looking at it like, this can't be real. Like this must be some sort of parody. Um, And I'm uh, clicking through and like started reading it and was like, oh, this was the report that was launched after the Black Lives Matter movement. This is like actual progressive stuff that just isn't being progressive at all. Um, And I remember immediately sending a message on our opinions chat to be like, guys, have you seen this? Like, what is this? And so my, uh, to just sum up, so basically in a few words, I was shocked and honestly just quite sad because what after the shock had died down and after I was less angry, um, I was just more sad afterwards because I thought that, you know, last year we were going to get somewhere and then we didn't get anywhere, it seems, although I think the outcry did do something, but we get, we'll get on to talk about that. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you summed up so many of my first emotions when I saw that headline as well, you know, shock, outrage, and then a sort of sadness and a sort of hopelessness because you think to yourself every time before where you may have experienced uh, some instance of institutional racism or you know someone who has or you've heard about it you kind of think okay the previous race reports we've had they've never denied this idea of institutional racism we've had governments come out and say we know it's a problem we've had you know certain people have tried to say that doesn't exist or whatever but for the most part you feel like we're going towards working against that And then to have that said, you're thinking, God, the next time this happens to me, when I go out to the workplace, when I graduate in a year or two, how do I say to someone, this is institutional racism, if my own government is telling me that isn't the case, you just need to get over it. And I just felt, you know, so like, where do I even go from here? Because now I feel like if I'm ever a victim of institutional racism, I just won't have anyone, you know, believing me. It was just such a gaslight. I agree with you and I think it also it felt like suddenly it was like a ball in the corner of the people who always seem to never have any evidence like uh, people who are just you know to put it bluntly are just racist um it's always you have that one up on them that you know look you can't prove to me that I'm not racially discriminated against because I am and I have facts and you have none and to have a report a commissioned published report that emphatically as its headline says that this thing that I told you exists doesn't exist 
And the fact that you could just put that in my face and say, look, the government says so. And because the government rules us, who am I to be like, well, no, but I am going to be like, no, because who wrote that report? Who is the government? All important questions. Um, But the fact that someone could bring that up and say, look, I don't believe you. And now I have evidence that scared me. Yeah, definitely. I think it was such a terrifying thought to be like, this is evidence because, you know, we're trained to see authority as evidence and there's no reason why we shouldn't if if these authorities that we've voted in are doing their jobs fairly and are doing things fairly. Um, and I think it, you raise a really good point there about who wrote the report, because the other big thing that really scares me is that it was ethnic minorities who did write the report. And, you know, I know that everyone has different experiences and different points of view, and I respect that. But this report was supposed to be independent, whereas we know that the certain ethnic minorities who were picked out have already expressed views that institutional racism doesn't exist. And many people who went to do the commission said, you know, my experience was there was no diversity of thought. Everybody, they knew what outcome they wanted. They knew outcome what outcome they were going to write about. And so... It scares me even more because they've used that tactic of tokenization and that's going to be weaponized us, weaponized against us as well, right? Like, see, this Asian person says that there is no racism. So you as an Asian person, like, I don't really get what you're saying, um, which, you know, it's just like terrifying. I think it, it doesn't invite people to think more critically about who wrote the report as well. Um, I think that really raises another point that I was going to move on to, which was why do you think the findings were framed in the way that they were? Who I saw, I think it was um, George the Poet, um, really great man. Love I love him. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I remember him saying something along the lines of, it's the report, I, well, I think in his, I don't want to like rephrase his words, but he was saying something along the lines of, he thinks the report is okay, but he thinks that the decision, uh, the way the decision was taken to frame it, to title it, to sort of uh, publish and, you know, uh, promote it was weird. And it was clear, it either had an agenda, it was just ignorant in what what's going to happen when you put out a report that says institutional racism doesn't exist with its headline. So I thought, what did you think about why it might have been framed in that way? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. And I think um, it's a serious one to be had because I know when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, right? So Boris Johnson, whatever you think about him, he came out and he said, um, we need to do this report because clearly these people are taking to the streets and I can see these emotions. He said something like that, like there's an emotion here and clearly there's something going on. And, you know, like you said, you think about the undertaking of that report and you're like, okay, will another report help us? I'm not sure, but like, it seems to be some kind of step in some kind of direction. Um, And then you've got the panelists coming out and you think, okay, maybe there's a bit more of an agenda here. And I was listening to a podcast about this actually. And one of the main problems is we've had tens of millions of reports and the government's not really implemented any recommendations to a lot of those reports. Why do we need another report? And it just seemed like the reason we need another report was to counter all the other ones and be like, yeah, all of those recommendations are complete bullshit. Like institutional racism doesn't exist. Um, So, I mean, I don't know. That's a very strong opinion, but very cynical, but not one that I think you could put this government past. Uh, yes, I agree. And I think, yeah, as you say, having lots of reports come out and, and sort of call for different things is one thing, but having them be imp- implemented is another. Um, maybe this is just off the top of my head that I'm thinking and coming up with stuff, but it seems to me like maybe, well, I don't want to say this because I know that, <laughs> I know that it's, it's accusing some people of doing things that will never be able to respond to this because let's be honest, they're never going to hear this, but <laughs> let's not put that out there. No, no, no. We're one of the big podcasters. <laughs> we have views in Germany. <laughs> yes. Slovakia is all over us. Um, but I just think that potentially there's, there's an idea that maybe if they framed it in this way, it caters to an audience, so right. So it caters to the people who want to just believe that institutionalized racism doesn't exist. Will look at this report and say, "Look at it, it says this," and they're not going to read any more into it. They're not going to look below the surface because it doesn't. It's it's not 
uh, in their interest to do so. Then there's the other side of the debate with people who are really invested, usually minority groups, who will take this and will be upset and will be vocally very angry. And they will look into it and they will complain about the fact, about the way it was framed. And they will say, look, I get you've raised really good points. You've you've said a lot of things and you've talked about how we tackle things. And, you know, the report is not completely like I do still believe that, yes, there is classism. Yes, there is racism. And yes, intersectionality is the way to deal with any kind of problem in society. It's like who's going to be most affected is this person with all of the minority discriminations on top of one another rather than the person with just one. Like that's just common sense. But um, they're the ones who are going to read into it and they're going to have that conflict of knowing that some people will not read into it, but they have. And so that's a a struggle, an internal struggle for them. And then there's people in the middle who will sort of hear about the hearsay and will know what it was framed as. But because everyone's so distracted in their own opinions and how and arguing about the semantics of the way someone worded something, I feel like it takes the stress of the stress off the authority to actually implement anything. Because if you frame something in a way like our society doesn't help people who need help, like if if that was the title, then immediately everyone would be calling for someone to do something. They'd be like, you haven't helped. You told us that you weren't helping and you're still not helping. But this way, we're not talking about the fact that someone hasn't stepped into, you know, if they want to get, we were talking about this earlier, um, but if they want to get rid of the acronym BAME, okay, fine. It's just a word. What are you going to replace it with? What is your strategy to identify people who need help if you're not going to use the identification process of Black, Asian, minority, ethnic? Like, I don't mind what words you use. I mind how you use them. What do you do with them? Um, so that's that's my very long-winded way of saying that I think maybe it was an agenda as as all things in politics are to distract people from what a report is really supposed to do which is implement change yeah I think that's a really really good point and I think that's something that really came across to me when like I was digging into the report it was this idea that like a lot of it um it didn't really seem to have any action points so yeah I know we were talking about like what are they going to replace it with and that conversation has completely gone away like I remember these starlight headlines being like oh my god BAME is going to be abolished and you know people will be like oh and then maybe for like a day or something and people were like oh then what are we going to call them <laughs> and then um, after that we kind of died down but for ages I've been like I want to know like you know like at the end of the day this is how you see me this is what you call me and this is how you deal with my issues and it is actually really important I didn't agree with everything that Bain had in fact in fact I found it quite um what's the word sort of homogenizing our experiences um because obviously you know my experience as a South Asian woman is completely different to um someone else's experience as a black woman and similarly we were talking about class and this idea of course that classism exists and um I've been quite privileged in that sense like I I come from a a relative place of socioeconomic privilege so um that that homogenizing wasn't really working but how are we going to solve that you know we can't just come up with another label no label is ever going to be perfect but we can't just you know kind of be slack with it if that makes sense. Yes, I agree. And it also links to another point that I had in my brain around the race report, which was the idea of people creating buzzwords, using buzzwords to the effect that they die because they're just non, they don't convey anything anymore. And people have to create a new way of saying something. And it's like this constant cycle of, you know, during the Black Lives Matter movement, we had this term, um, white privilege that just became uh, at first it was something that people had to really learn about like they had to understand what does this mean I've never heard this term before but then it became a buzzword and suddenly everyone was talking about oh well you have white privilege and someone was like well I'm not privileged I'm uh, poor and not not to trivialize that issue that is an issue but as we said that's the inter- intersectionality of it it's understanding that you have certain privileges and certain uh what's the word 
yeah I mean it's like the idea I was I was reading about this with not reading I was watching this with Rachel Ricketts who I love everyone listeners go follow Rachel Ricketts she does amazing anti-racism work but she says one of the first steps of anti-racism for most of us um, is actually recognizing that you can be in the position of the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time and uh, you know it kind of allowed me to come to terms of yes as a woman I will experience certain barriers of oppression. As a South Asian, I will experience certain barriers of oppression. But as someone who's socioeconomically privileged, I may, through unconscious bias, through the way in which I'm able to succeed, through uh, the opportunities that I got through that, may also take the role of the unconscious oppressor. And that's something that you have to deal with and then think about, okay, how can I kind of dismantle that um, framework of oppression? Another person I wanted to bring up in regards to this debate was um, Emma Dabry, who I heard on LBC talking to Nick Ferrari about the report. And I, I, it was just, it was a whole conversation um, that was a lot to listen to. Um, but he was basically talking about, he, the way he was asking questions was quite interesting. Um, and it felt quite, as she says in her caption, to about um, when she posted the interview. Um, she said, listen to what happens when you don't respond to race baiting questions and instead explain that race was invented to keep exploited people of all ethnicities united under English elites. Um, and it was the way that she sort of was talking about the race report and talking about its findings and refusing to be sort of gaslit in any way. And when she mentioned that obviously race was invented, um, he took he had a massive double take and was like sorry you mean race was invented and she then immediately busted out all of these facts about how race was an invention by colonizers to help group certain people and and have um, dominance over them and sort of invent this idea that some people are different because of genetics but actually race has no genetic um fi- foundations it's it's not ba- based on anything ethnicity is um, but race is an invention uh, by humans, um, which I just thought was a really interesting thing to come out of um, the, specifically in the media. Um, and it has got nothing to do really with um, the wider implications of the report. Um, but I thought it was interesting to bring up specifically how it was being uh, perceived even by the British media. Yeah, I think that's actually really important to bring up, just kind of circling back to what we were talking about in terms of the any specific agenda of the report, because um, historically, right, you've got this kind of cycles where you've got um, lots of people unite. So like white working class, women, people of colour, because they all kind of go to this collective consciousness of, oh, OK, we're all being oppressed, um, admittedly to different degrees and in different ways. But like there is the kind of same thing in which that we're all living in this collective sort of white supremacist hierarchy, which values the white straight man above all else, uh, white straight able-bodied man. Um, and so it was really interesting because when you read about history, both here and in America, historically, the way in which it, the governments and those in power try and dismantle those coalitions is by kind of using groups. So you're white, so you're slightly better even if you're a white working class, you're a man, therefore you're slightly better than your white woman counterpart. You're a white woman, therefore you're slightly better than your person of color woman counterpart. And then of course you get all these divisions of, well, um, you know, who's who and where's everyone on the chapter ladder. You get that with the model minority myth as well, right? Um, so I found that really interesting to think about the idea that kind of race um, has been constructed to divide us essentially. I agree. And I think, again, even as you mentioned the model minority myth, um, I think specifically in my or our community, um, the idea of realising that, well, I suppose less so in the UK and more so in America, that the difference between the black and Asian community there, that the black community was uh, by and large founded or formed from uh, the the end of slavery and all the slaves who had been transported there then took roots there when slavery was abolished and they formed that community and so they were already set up to not have much opportunity in life because of where they came from and how they came to that country whereas the Asian community in America 
was handpicked from Asia and they were picked for their intelligence, for their wealth, and they were taken into America to succeed. And so understanding that difference and understanding that difference of opportunity, I think was like, I I think I watched like a really fast TikTok video on it and suddenly was like, oh, my whole world had opened up and I realized that this whole thing could even translate to the UK, I think, because you even have communities here in the UK that were founded not even that long ago, in like the 1950s, the 1960s, but they were from the like dregs of, of the empire. And then there were other people who've come here for education, who've come here for better lives. And then there are people who've come here as asylum seekers and they all have had different opportunities, different goals and different th- ways. Like le- they would, they all started on different rungs of the ladder. Um, and it's, as you say, understanding that people are not a homogenous group, even when they come from one group. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point to raise and really interesting history as well, like certainly raising stuff that I didn't know as much about. So um, that's really interesting. I'll probably end up looking more into that when I have this uh, spare time. And I think that actually links uh, really nicely to another thing that we wanted to talk about, which was, you know, where do we go next? I think one of the first things that we expressed when we talked about our reaction to the report is how do people now see us? And how do we see our experiences of racism? So what do we think the next steps should be for the British government and, and the West generally, really, in terms of tackling racial discrimination, which we know is still really prevalent today? I think that I, I don't want to be a sceptic, but I don't know if there's anything more, anything progressive that really could happen under this government. Um, I think that with their actions so far, they've seemed to have, in my opinion, um, presented. I don't know if I want to be this political. Hmm. Um, it's empowered. I. It is. It is true. Um, we are being empowered here. This is. This is the revolution. Um, I think that potentially this report is a, is a marker for this government and their their stance on this. Um, and I don't know how much the authority will listen if this is what they decide an independent report will look like. Um, but I, I I have hope because of the outcry and because how big it was. And yes, maybe my echo chamber is a bit biased because I was listening to a lot of, not to say it, but BAME voices. And that meant that I was getting my own views reflected back at me. So yes, maybe I saw a big outcry because I was uh, I had curated that that uh, audience. But I still think that the fact that people are empowered enough to say no, this is not you're not going to tell our story this way, is a good sign. And I just hope that as politics evolves, that you know one step forward, two steps back, maybe things will get a better. But it's such a bleak view of history. Please provide me with a better one if you have one. Maybe. I mean, I think <laughs> uh, if I take a, a positive spin on what you said about this government, and that's not a positive spin about this government, like, don't get my opinion wrong, um, <laughs> um, is that, yes, I think you're right. I think that this government isn't going to do anything of note for us. I, I think that this race report, actually, like you said, is a marker. It's a kind of, yeah, we did your report and this is what we're going to do. We are still going to shut you down and we're still going to tell your story for you. But I think, it, like you say, with the outcry, I think the hope is in asking you guys, our listeners, and asking everyone out there, like, when you vote, please think about who gets affected the most by your vote. And I'm not just talking about the next general election, I'm talking about the upcoming local elections. They have way more impact on the institutions than you think, like the roads, the um, the education, you know, everything. And all of that stuff might seem really insignificant, but actually it does really link back to the kind of racial experience. I don't know why I said the roads, but, you know. So, but especially education and education is such a big part. And many of you in Bristol, we have these, but many of you across the country will have your PCC elections. That's police and crime commissioners. Now, loads of people don't know about those elections, but they are really important because some of the the kind of worst relations that we have uh, with people of colour have is with policing and we need to get more progressive people in to think about like a different future for policing so if there's one thing that you could do right here in the now is like vote in your local elections 
I didn't know that as well. Um, so that's really news to me. And thanks for educating me on that. Um, it, so it is the mayoral, obviously the mayoral candidate and also the London Assembly that we're voting for primarily. Yeah. So in London, so we've got a ton of different local elections basically going on across the country. So in London, you've got your London Assembly, you've got um, and your mayoral. Um, now, I'm not going to give my opinion on on who that I think you should vote for, because obviously that's like a, a bias. But when I, yeah, just kind of maybe look at those policies and think about some of the things that we were talking about today as well. Um, we've also got so I'm in Bristol as a student. So Bristol are also doing mayoral elections and then they're doing local council elections. So certain people will just have local council elections. Um, some people will have like regional mayors, which we have as well. Um, it's really different in every region and some regions are having by-elections as well, which I know sounds really confusing. <laughs> um, but if you're in any doubt, like just go onto the government website, they tend to have like a useful breakdown um, or maybe just contact one of your local councillors and they'd be happy to explain it to you as well. We wanted to talk about um, the reporting, which was many people have talked about. It's been really widely spoken about, but just specifically about the way that the media, especially in the UK, covered the death of Prince Philip. And obviously um, our thoughts go out to the people, the family who are affected and um, any death is a sad death. And so we in by no means mean any disrespect, um, but we just wanted to speak about the the way that his actions and his life was reported um, and whether there was any injustice in that. Because there have been lots of opinions and there have been pins on both sides. And so um, I realised both uh, Sanjay and I might come at, come at this from one perspective, um, but it's, some, it's still something that should be discussed and obviously we'll, we'll bounce off each other on that. Um, so to start off with, um, you know, how did you feel about the reporting of Prince, Prince Philip's passing, um, both with, so maybe we'll come on to this, but there's a big disparity between the way that the official media was reporting it and what the way that many young anti-monarchists on social media were talking about it. And I think people very angry at each side and so I was just wondering what your opinions were on the whole thing. Yeah I think you're right and um, I guess before I go into that I probably would just echo you and say you know can my thoughts with the royal family if, if you're listening hello um, <laughs> um, but no okay in all seriousness my thoughts to the royal family and um, you know like you say any death is, is shaking and you know to lose your companion after so long I, I completely understand the effect of that and that will kind of lead into some of my opinions in terms of both the reporting in both issues. So when I first heard about the news, I thought, I thought what happened on the day was going to happen. So I thought this is going to dominate the coverage on BBC for the whole day. And that's exactly what did happen. They cancelled the whole day. And I know people had a variety of opinion, opinions on that, but I thought, okay, maybe for like one day, that makes sense for at least BBC news to cover the whole thing. One thing I did find quite excessive was BBC One and BBC Two were running the same programme. Um, they were running exactly the same programme. If I was watching it on BBC One, how would I be watching it on BBC Two? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. And um, to me, I thought, okay, maybe cancel all the programmes on BBC One. That is the most serious channel. Um, but there was no reason why they didn't need to provide any alternate coverage on BBC Two, BBC Three, etc. And um, what I found interesting was, was certain people critiqued, I believe it was Channel 4, who kind of, they just took some time out and they, they put on Come Dine With Me. And I think it became like a bit of a joke, like um, the Come Dine With Me was going on and like everyone else was doing really depressing coverage. Um, but I was like, you know, why not? Because this is such a difficult time for all of us. A lot of people are dealing with death right now. A lot of people have had death of loved ones. A lot of people are locked down. They're feeling down. They're struggling with mental health issues people might find all day coverage of death quite triggering. Um, they might need that release. You know, there are so many different things to think about. And also, you know, a lot of the coverage was quite repetitive. So I didn't, you know, just from a kind of the TV as a function of entertainment, which we talked a bit about in one of our other podcasts, like someone has to do it. You know what I mean? Um, well, I, agree with what you said about um sort of the coverage um and I think perhaps there's a lot of agendas and a lot of motives to think about when 
um, we discuss why this might have happened. Because um, I know, for instance, that when the Queen Mother died, um, I think in the early 2000s, the BBC was then criticised for its lack of coverage or it's seen as lack of or not enough coverage. Um, and even the news reporter at the time, I've forgotten his name now, but he didn't wear a black tie and that was seen as a sign of disrespect as well. And so obviously there hasn't been a royal death since then. So um, obviously it's a big deal for the BBC to now right wrongs of the past. But the problem is, is that those things happened in the past and times have changed. And whether you like it or not, anti-monarchy sentiment has grown in the past um, decade or so. And a lot of people just don't believe in that concept anymore. And that doesn't mean that they have, you know, they're not, they're not being disrespectful of um, people because respecting and disrespecting a person is one thing, but respecting and disrespecting a concept is another. And the monarchy is a concept. Um, there are there are people in it who should be treated with respect and human rights and etc. But the actual overarching institution that they represent that is not modern you know and there are people who don't agree with that and they are from a certain part of society and there are people who really do agree with that and they're from another part and those two parts I think really clashed on that day um and they really came to blows and I think that's what we saw play out yeah no I think um I think that's really important. I think it's really important to think about the fact that the BBC seem to want to save face or seem to want to come across as um, kind of being respectful in what felt like a very outdated way, in a kind of like, oh, yes, I'm your subject and let me bow down to you. And it, yeah, like you say, times have changed. Like many people, I certainly don't wake up every day and think, oh, I'm a subject of Her Royal Majesty. <laughs> and that, that technically might be true, but I don't kind of see myself like that. Um, and I think you're right. So the monarchy is is a concept and we need to understand that that concept is something that's rooted in classism, colonialism and racism. That's a fact. That's not disrespecting the monarchy. That's not me personally attacking the queen. That is a fact. Um, and I think that was a line that sometimes was difficult to draw on social media. Um, and for me personally, it was there were there were comments on the day of his death that I saw, and I am very anti, you know, anti-colonial, anti-monarchist, anti-racist. Personal jibes against Prince Philip that I just felt in the moment were a bit distasteful. But at the same time, and and this is where you get a lot of conflict in the diaspora. I also understood why certain people felt like they reacted in that way because I saw views on Twitter saying well why should I respect him as a person when he never respected me as a person he wouldn't have respected me as a person he would have made some comment about my race he would have objectified me or exoticized me or said something about it and it was you know, I was actually finding myself in, in a really weird stage of conflict where it was like if this was anyone else I'd just be like why are you making those comments and I was and I was also like I understand it and I don't know if you resonate with any of those experiences, but no, I definitely do. And I was also on social media looking at lots of takes, and it was like this com inner conflict that I had because there were a lot of people from potentially with more extreme points of view who were seemingly giving quite founded arguments that I couldn't d disagree with, but I also felt uncomfortable with their um, the way they were expressing themselves. And that was a conflict I had to battle. Um, but I do definitely see where they were coming from. And I think it's an important point to bring into the mainstream, even though it's not a mainstream idea, which I think is that sort of leading on to our next point is, you know, if someone is uh, has victimised people, whether themselves individually or as part of their wider life decisions and things that they've done and if it is un especially a famous person if it's unlikely that they will ever see the things that you've said does it make it okay to say them and um when I say they I know that when someone passes away obviously they're not going to see anything but I mean <laughs> the people around them and the people who are cl clearly grieving and uh, going through a loss and that's a really tough time for any family 
would it be then okay um because they're unlikely to see that for them to um for people to say things and i know just to add on before um i pass over to you is um a thing that's really brought up a lot when a famous person says something or does something a bit controversial or a bit out there um for example when i remember i think it was chrissy teigen when she spoke about her miscarriage um or her problems with fertility um and a lot of people she got a lot of backlash on on social media for it talking about um people talking about and attacking her for the things that she shared and the the, the constant comment that you always see is that insert name here is not going to see your um you know your hateful comments but the people who follow you who are in your mutual circles will who go through the similar who go through similar things and they will be impacted by that and i'm trying to see like an in, in instance in this instance where something someone says specifically about for in this instance prince philip would have impacted someone else and i don't know if there is a similar comparison to draw there i don't know what do you think yeah i think that's something i've never really thought about before in in relation to actually the comments about prince philip's death um because obviously we talked a little bit about this in the piers morgan episode about this idea lots of people were calling megan a liar and they were saying you know you can call her a liar she won't see it but um the people who are struggling with mental health in your circle will um i think that's a really difficult question because i think when any celebrity dies particularly one of contention there are always going to be people, there are always going to be haters, which sounds really corny. Um, and I, you know, whether it's right or not, it's always so difficult, like we were talking about in the previous point. In terms of people in the circle who would have been actually affected by it, I actually think that there isn't an exact case in which this would be triggering because, it, you know, someone couldn't be like, oh, well, I've experienced grief and the royal family are experiencing grief, like, therefore I'm triggered. I don't think, because the royal family have, like, a significant amount of cushioning to soften their grief. Um, I'm sorry to say, I, that doesn't make it any easier, but it's true. Um, so I think in this instance, actually, I don't know if this is going to be controversial and we're, we're going to get, like, hate back on our podcast or something, but I just don't think that's the case. I don't think it's similar to anything, like, with Megan or with Chrissy Teigen, etc., if you're expressing expressing your opinion um, in regards to in regard to Prince Philip, and it was about the institution that he represented and the comments that he made during his lifetime that were harmful to people and did victimize people, then I I I don't see a problem with it because you know you can't tell me well I'm a racist and I'm personally offended by it because that. <laughs> I mean, you say that, but so many people somehow come up with that argument. <laughs> it's like, do you hear yourself when you speak? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, that's the only person I can think who would have been affected by it. The only other thing is, I know comments about someone's physicality are always a grey area. And I, I understand that, you know, people in that. The, the way that people were attacking him was because of his role but they were attacking other things about him and it's like the same thing with the Trump hate when people say things about his body or about him his physicality and it's like well don't attack his appearance attack his policies attack his racism attack him in terms of his views because that's the bit that you want to attack that's not you don't want to equify um one thing with another when they're not comparatively linked um which i suppose could be drawn into this prince philip argument because yes he was very old man but that doesn't mean that all old men are like that um and i know there is a certain sort of stereotype in society that we don't need to argue for we don't need to stand up for the white old man because you know he has the world but I do agree that if we wanted to be consistent in our message, then you attack someone's point of view, you don't attack them as a person. Oh, no, you don't attack them for anything else. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. And I think that was kind of my personal standpoint. It was kind of, um, I will not, I will not at all 
dull down my critiques of Prince Philip as an institution, as an as someone who was probably racist. I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, who was racist. Oh, probably was. Um, and yeah, someone who was racist, someone who did play a part in upholding colonial dynamics and someone who had a significant amount of privilege. Um, you know, I'm not going to dull that down at all. My personal standpoint is I'm not going to make personal remarks about him. There were other people, you know, but then I also took the standpoint of I'm not going to critique those who do, particularly those who are more marginalised than I am, because I have no place to tone police them. Um, and that's kind of the approach that I took. So we talked a little bit about the media reporting of his death. I now want to move on specifically to the media reporting of his history of racism. Um, and this is something that I think really hit home with, with me, my family. So I don't know, how did you feel about that? How did you feel about this idea of them being passed off as gaffes or sometimes not even being talked about at all? Oh, I found it so interesting. It's just the amount of synonyms that they came up with. And uh, you must have seen it. There was this list of things that Prince Philip had said. And at first, I genuinely thought it was a parody post because like, I was like, someone didn't say this. Like, this isn't a real thing that someone has said. Um, but I I actually need to bring it up because um, I need to, hang on, let me move. I'm so intrigued because I, I don't know, I wasn't as brave as you. I was like, I'm not going to find everything you've ever said. I'll just kind of do a vague Google search. <laughs> uh, so apparently he told... British women, he told the Scottish Women's Institute in 1961 that British women can't cook. He then was shown Ethiopian art in 1965 and made the comment that it looks like the kind of thing my daughter would bring back from her school art lessons. No. Well, he also said to a Kenyan woman who was presenting him with a small gift in 1984, he said the phrase, you are a woman, you are a woman, aren't you? I've heard of that one. That shocked me. I mean, so many of them shocked me, but I was just like, <sighs> I can't believe. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I think it's yeah. Need to circle back to this idea of privilege because, I, you know, what kind of level of entitlement does it take to say something like that to to a natural human being, to a fellow human being? I just don't know. I, mean, I think it also links to the point I was making. Not not that I was trying to make a link, but I'm now going to make this link. Um, earlier with you know the people who are already racist will continue to be racist when presented with more evidence that can allow them to have those have those claims and I think um, that viewpoint comes from a lot of privilege as you say because um, the way that I expressed that the other side you know when we got really vocal and then we looked into the report and then we realized that okay the report has some okay points but it's really phrased really we had to do all that work we had to put effort in and we had to like look at it and we had to do lots of research people with privilege don't have to do that they don't have to look into things and they don't have to do research and they don't have to be accountable for certain things and I think that's something that is really prevalent with the things that Prince Philip has said he has never really been held accountable and it, it, it even in death and that was what like I think really hurt me because you know if I say something that's really offensive I would expect that someone would hold me to that and I would you know be looked at differently after that because people would say well look you said that thing once and prove to us that you've changed and then we'll forgive you but until then no you said something wrong and we're going to treat you differently because of it whereas here it was like everyone was brushing up the carpet not just like sweeping things under the carpet but just like making the carpet look pretty regardless of like the fact that you could see things seeping out from under it because no one wanted to like be the person who said look that wasn't correct and you can't get away with it because um maybe people said it but this is the point like can you be critical of someone in death is that okay and like how long do you if you can't how long can you wait or can you just never be critical of someone in death like I I want to know what's the answer is there an answer I don't know well I think again so much of that is rooted in privilege um you know like I think the the like you say people he just wasn't being held accountable because no one wanted to point it out because of his exalted status in this country um 
And I think the other thing, the other comment that I noticed being made a lot, uh, which eventually led to something on the Sunday Times being like, oh, he made gaffes about Slitty Dive, which made him controversial. This isn't exactly what it said, but it said something like, even though we secretly enjoyed them. And I think it was this, this particular idea of he was just breaking the ice. He was just doing it to kind of make people laugh. He was doing it to be humorous. Like it was a really funny part of his nature. I was like, funny for who? Like, I feel like for you, you're assuming that your average watcher is a white man or a white person because for them, yeah, that is funny. It doesn't kind of like, it's not like, Oh, it's not my existence at play here. Whereas when Prince Philip says something like, I think he saw like a socket, in and he saw a socket that was like badly I don't know it was it was broken or something and he said oh it looks like it's been put in by an Indian and you're thinking that's a direct comment on my ability to do something because the assumption is as an Indian I am lesser um and you know yeah it just comes back to privilege there of like who gets to laugh you know yes I agree fully with everything you've said and I think uh, something that I mentioned to my dad in the aftermath of it all was I think you know, we know that the royal family is outdated, that as an institution, it's a, just a bit behind with the times. Um, and I think Prince Philip was a symbol of the really, really old, outdated part of it that just never moved on. And um, yes, I understand that it's really, in any situation, to lose your consort for 73, four years um, is a terrible thing. And it would be like, I think, the worst pain imaginable but um like taking that out of the picture and just looking at the person who has been lost is it yes you can grieve if you were his concert because i get that you have an emotional connection but does society need to grieve as well because did society have an emotional connection and was society well treated by this person what you were saying about your conversations with your dad that was definitely a conversation we had in in our family too we kind of talked about it okay day one we were like yes someone's lost a life let's kind of be respectful um we don't have to watch all the coverage like you know we haven't <laughs> we have the option to turn on tv or turn off the tv um but you know we'll kind of it's a really sad death it's sad um and so sad for the queen we don't necessarily have you know who <laughs> we weren't going to cry about it we never met him um <laughs> but like exactly you know, queen and then I remember like you know sort of day two day three it was still going I mean they managed to keep stuff going for a week I find it quite impressive actually um like um my dad just went you know what I think this is I think it's just an excuse to um kind of bring back some of that colonial ceremony and that colonial glory that that some British people have just never moved on from and any excuse you know um I won't say that I didn't celebrate you know things like the diamond jubilee we did that in school and stuff but like it just feels like oh any excuse to sort of whip out the flags and sing rule Britannia is like let's go do it and the, the the thing is especially because um the the golden jubilee no golden jubilee yeah diamond jubilee I think it was diamond but honestly yeah <laughs> well I was so young that any sense of happiness and community was great I was like yes I'll rejoice in this and, you know, the, pro the point that I'm making is that, yes, I was allowed to rejoice in it and I was given a place to rejoice in it. And then that's OK, because as a child, I very much felt a part of it all. And that's that's like a good thing as an adult or coming on. Or, you know, I am an adult. Yes, I am an adult. Um, as an adult, <laughs> I, try, I always forget. I'm almost 20 and I still tell myself I'm a child. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but as someone who's much older now, with much more understanding of my history and where I've come from, if they were, as they did this time, be, of course, a very sad occasion, but if there was a very happy occasion of similar scale that was whipped out again, I think I would second guess it because this time I'm like, well, who are you actually celebrating? What does this mean? And I would feel very distant from the celebration so I'd be like well mm, you're kind of celebrating the fact that you could give me rules and like rule my life and rule my ancestors life which wasn't apparent to me when I was 10 years old but is apparent to me now so I think um that's the difference I've made growing up okay sure if you're you know born in this country raised in this country felt the camaraderie of being part of something bigger than yourself like 
the the royal family and the royal occasions and everything like that like I was when I was a child then you have a lot of good memories from it and so you feel very emotionally tied to it and therefore you very feel very sad when someone dies in that institution great however it's another thing to then look at someone else who's coming from a very different standpoint who you know they came from the same institution but they came from the opposite side as of you as you they weren't on the on the ruling side they were on the oppressed side and they've come and they've they've built themselves but they still remember where they came from and when someone dies they're not emotionally attached to it because they were never part of this club they were always on the outside and so when they see someone who represented those views and sort of even fed into those views a lot when they've died they have no emotional connection to that person. They only have everything they know that they've represented in their head. And so that obviously they're not going to be, they're not going to react the same way that that former person did. That doesn't mean that your sadness isn't valid. You can feel sad, but that does mean that you sh- their, sad, their feelings aren't valid either. So you can feel sad and you can grieve, but you shouldn't police their feelings at the same time and force them to feel the same way as you because you don't feel the same way as them. And I think that circles back a little bit to kind of something that was raised in the in the race report, but something that I just found um, is still going on today, right? This kind of under-reporting or under-educating of empire. Because in the report, there was this idea of we need to teach a new, a new perspective on slavery. Um, I wasn't really sure what that new perspective was, though, because we weren't taught about the horrors of slavery at school. I wasn't. I, I learned about that myself. Um, I was taught about the civil rights movement. And so I guess I knew a little bit from there. But I actually did not learn about the horrors of slavery in school. I certainly did not learn about partition in school, found out about that myself. Um, I didn't know that my uh, like that you know, our ancestors, the South Asians, would have fought in the World War. And that's actually how they got into independence. So when we learned about the World Wars, I always thought of that as a England, Britain, and all the white people were really, really good. And the brown people, I'm not really sure where they were, but like they maybe were in the world. I'm not really sure why this is called World War One. And then I learned, oh, because the whole world fought in it, because all the colonies were fighting in it. But I was never told that. And um, I just think it's really interesting because I know there are quite a lot of stats on about, you know, what people think about the empire. And a lot of people still don't recognise that those days were times of atrocity, were times of being kind of ruled and oppressed in ways that are just not okay because they were in one, you know, they were on one side of it and they've never been given the perspective of the other side of it. And again, like you said, it's kind of who has the privilege to say, well, I, I don't need to know. And who doesn't have the privilege of, well, I never learned about my ancestors in school, so I kind of want to find out a bit more and then go, oh. Because I found that quite a painful experience, finding out about the history of what Britain had done to my to, to India. I don't know if you found that the same. Yes, I, I agree. I, um, I made a very, um, I would say, ignorant comment when I went back to uh, Sri Lanka uh, where I was uh, 14 and it was like the second time I've ever been and I, I I remember going to like a tea plantation and looking at like the sort of history like it was like the not history it was like the what had been left behind by the British government and it was this it was like it was like very British right and it was like a tea and all of the like in architecture was very colonial British and you know that kind of thing has always been like imprinted in your brain as like very symbolic and and like with lots of stature and it was like and I looked at it with like great pride and I was like you know things were kind of better when Britain ruled us and like had all of the influence and gave us all of this like stuff to put in our country and I just think about that now and because the reason I said that was because as soon as we got independence well not as soon as but in a in like the following years and decades since there has been no stability there has been very little democracy there's been such a long civil war that is still going on and it and I was so ignorant to think that that was our fault but it wasn't that was that was the impact of being ruled and then being left to deal with the the divisions that were caused by the the colonizers and like that is apparent to me now, but wasn't apparent to me then. Um, and I don't know why I 
oh it was because of learning about your history and yeah I I knew that we'd been colonized but I I didn't know anything about anything that happened when we were I still know very little about our colonial history um mainly because I just haven't done my own research which I need to do because I want to do it but no one told it to me so it's up to me to find out but another thing just very separate to this that um also really shocked me when I found out was when I was doing GCSE history which you know props to our history department for teaching us this but um I remember finding out that you know the I'm, I'm not going to know what it's called but the the yellow star that um Hitler made um Jews wear to, to sort of symbolize that they were Jewish uh during the during World War II that was not his own original idea that was formed in the 12 1200s by Britain when they decided to be incredibly anti-Semitic after using Jews for their um, uh, monetary skills when they were building lots of churches in and around Britain and Europe. And that was a massive, wide-opening, like, eye-opening experience to realise, wait, I've been told for years about World War II and about how bad Adolf Hitler was and about how badly he impacted everyone and you're telling me now that this ideology began in this country that I was told was the greatest country for defeating him I and like of course of course now I'm like well of well yes because we have such a bad bloody history for the whole world we've just gone around the whole world <laughs> um and done so much this is such a contentious podcast i've said so many things I feel like but always new. Yeah. you drop the word race into anything and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah my final point was that just that was my my eye-opening moment it wasn't even about my own past it was about something that had been misrepresented to me because as you say Bring, bring this back to the first point it's like a new perspective no it wasn't a new perspective it was an untold perspective and that's the same thing we need to know about slavery yeah yeah I completely agree and I think it gets to a nice point to conclude on to kind of talk about um a thread that I think has been running through both of our discussions and the first one is that we are in a society of of persistent I feel denial um, denial of our bloody history you know we can't change history now we can't change what happened what happened was awful but the first step towards making sure it doesn't reiterate in different ways is acceptance and yet the race report for me personally represents another stage in, in just continuing to deny you know I think there was a certain phrase in, in the race report saying that we're a model for other western nations and I think again it just kind of continues that rhetoric and the second point is that until we tackle that denial and we stop teaching both white and people of colour alike to have that denial, there's, there's always going to be people like you and me and, and people in other colonised countries who can't decolonize their own minds and can't decolonize their own approaches because so much of their thinking will be, well, maybe it was just better because England's always been this example for this and that and the other. You know, when you've been hearing that for a long time, it's quite difficult to get rid of that mentality. You see it in India when you go there. You see it here. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we've all been victim to that as well. I agree. And I think um, growing up in this country has given us both very unique perspectives, um, which is shared by, I imagine, a lot of second generation immigrants um on that in a conflict of your sort of ethnic history versus your understanding of history in the British education system which is one of the few one of the many rather areas that I hope this report in its long run I'm being very hopeful here would actually have an impact on um and that's that's sort of my hope is that you know okay, maybe the report didn't do anything, but maybe us talking about it, talking about our outcry for it and um, sort of the continued backlash from it. I was supposed to go to a Guardian um, talk on is the British media racist? And that, unfortunately it was postponed. It was supposed to be this Wednesday. I was very much looking forward to it. 
but then it was postponed. But even events like that being held, being talked about, maybe that will ha- now maybe that will be the change and that will be the impact. Only time will tell. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it's nice to end on a message of hope, and I think a lot of what we've talked about has been really heavy, but. Uh, you know we're seeing lots of people come together we're seeing conversations happening in mainstream media that have never happened before we're seeing steps forward very small steps forward being made even in America um with with the conviction of Derek Chauvin so you know maybe we can be the change our generation can be the change um that's vitally needed Okay, uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Um, as usual, kind of share this with your friends. If you enjoyed it, feel free to comment. If you have any of your own opinions, I'm sure you will have loads because, you know, we came up with so many contentious topics in this podcast. And um, just keep listening out for more because we've got so many more exciting episodes planned. So uh, thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> the Empowered Opinions Podcast empowering the voices of today. If you would like to hear more from us, you can check out our website at empoweredjournalism.com or follow us on social media at Empowered Journals on Twitter and Empowered Journalism everywhere else.